Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday, 17th November, as COVID-19 continues to rampage across the Northern Hemisphere, with track and trace continuing to fail us in the UK, and vaccines arriving like London buses, three in the past week, each with claims of greater efficacy than the last, and together offering hope that the pandemic might indeed be brought to an end. Today on the line, I have our three regular contributors, Nisreen Alwan. Hi, it's Nisreen. I'm an Associate Professor in Public Health at the University of Southampton. And Helen Salisbury. Hello, I'm Helen. I'm a GP in Oxford. Matt Morgan. Hi, I'm an Intensive Care Consultant based in Cardiff. And our expert guest this week, Katrina Pollock. Hi, I'm a Senior Clinical Research Fellow in Vaccinology at Imperial College London. Kat, if I might start with you, um, what do we know about the main vaccine candidates and are they all using the same kind of approach or do any stand out as taking a different approach? What stands out globally is the fact that every single vaccine platform that has been discovered over uh, the course of vaccinology is being used to develop different COVID vaccines. Uh, which is a, a remarkable plethora of research. The front runners, the ones that people have heard about over the last week, are using modern technology, uh, which has not been previously licensed for vaccines. So two RNA vaccines and uh, one adenoviral vectored vaccine, um, which makes it very exciting for the research. The RNA vaccines are... Um, produced by Pfizer, BioNTech and um, Moderna. Uh, And both of them uh, show what looks like encouraging efficacy in in their early uh, data analysis. Obviously, we haven't seen the full data yet. And then Sputnik V, which is the adenoviral vector vaccine from the Gamaleya uh, Institute in Russia, also looks like it has encouraging vaccine efficacy. So these new platforms do look like they may well be able to deliver and hold promise for future research as well. The figures we're hearing of, of 90, 92 and 94% accuracy for those three that you mentioned. Um, I mean, what, what does that actually mean in, in real terms? And, and how good is that? To answer the second part of your question first. So it's really, really encouraging. I, I mean, if we took HIV vaccine research, for example, as, as a comparator, if we'd seen this uh, sort of data coming out in the early stages of HIV vaccine research, I think we'd be in a very different position now with HIV vaccines. Um, so I think it is encouraging that um, we may well have a disease that is modifiable with a vaccine, and that's what we're all hoping for. Um, at the same time, these are press releases. Um, they give very, very limited detail on the actual data. Uh, that They ask more questions than they really answer. And I think we're going to need to scrutinise that data very carefully um, when it is finally published, and we still need to wait for that. So I think it's encouraging for, the, for COVID vaccine research, but there's still a long way to go. And what data would you like to see before these vaccines are approved and rolled out for for public use? Uh, The first thing I want to see is the safety data. Uh, That's absolutely paramount. So I want to know 
um, how well the vaccines were tolerated, how how um, uh, how that that's been, and particularly when we have a scale up across thousands of people, uh, rather than the just um, the tens or hundreds that are in the phase one two studies, whether there've been any um, severe adverse reactions, we we need to see all of that so that we can uh, predict how the vaccine might behave when it's given to millions of people. And at the same time, we want to know which part of the infection and disease cycle the vaccine is actually modifying. And that's not, a, uh, not actually a straightforward question. So the data that's been released so far about these three vaccines seems to suggest um, that there is disease modification, but we don't know what that means for infection. We don't know what it means for transmission. And we need to understand those numbers in order to um, define public health strategy. We're going to need to do that quite quickly. And, and how, do we know how long uh, immunity is likely to last as a result of the vaccination? I mean, we've got to be two vaccines given in within a few weeks of each other. And then we just don't know. Is that is that right? Yes. Yeah, so most of the vaccines uh, that are in clinical trials right now are a prime boost regimen. Uh, and... Uh, that essentially means that you have a, an initial dose which primes the immune system uh, and then a second dose which um, boosts the response. Uh, and that is particularly important where you have um, somebody who's completely naive, so they've not been exposed before to um, COVID-19 and, and, and therefore don't have an immune response to it. Um, in the future, the landscape is likely to change as more and more people get exposed, sadly, through natural transmission and also more people are immunised. Um, one point that I'd like to make is vaccines essentially piggyback on the natural paradigm of infection. So if we think about a childhood infection uh, that it, we currently immunise against, it's a childhood infection by definition, we don't see it in adults. So therefore, if natural immunity is left to play its part, um, those who survive the infection um, go on to have lifelong immunity. And, and that's one of the reasons why childhood immunizations are so incredibly successful, because they, um, they mimic that paradigm. We don't yet know enough about uh, this coronavirus to know what the natural paradigm of immunity is. We don't know how long immunity will last. We don't know if that immunity will be sterilizing. And we don't know if... Um, it will mean that in, after a year, two years, people will subsequently become vulnerable to infection again. And um, those uh, um, parameters of natural infection will in, be important for immunization as well. And so it, it, at the moment, we just need to keep monitoring it and understanding it. And I think it's important that as part of the immunization program, we are monitoring people's um, antibody responses in the long term so that we can define those parameters um, in, a, in a way that will inform public health strategy. Yes, thank you. That's really helpful to know, Kat. I, I mean, from a public health side, I don't want to dampen the great optimism that everybody's feeling, but I do feel like we have to be, uh, we have to inject a sense of realism. So even if we have, uh, you know, the way I see it, even if we have a really effective, very safe vaccine, that doesn't mean an immediate end to the public health measures that we're taking now in the pandemic. Um, I'd just like to maybe hear your view from an implementation implementation side, because, you know, so many questions about who gets it, uh, when they get it, but surely that will take a long time and we need to um, have the public health message of we, we will have to continue doing what we're doing uh, for, for a while. 
Yes, I think that's right. I mean, the current public health measures are, are aimed very much at um, reducing transmission. And thankfully, we know that lockdown works. I mean, it's, it, it's a very difficult measure to implement from a socioeconomic perspective. But um, when it's followed carefully, it does reduce transmission. And that's why when we have uh, vaccines available and perhaps part of the emergency use licensing, we will need to understand both how those vaccines will affect uh, people's chances of uh, getting disease, but also how they're going to affect transmission. And that's going to be very important for managing public health strategy. And as you say, quite rightly, um, in that equation, we need to think about the time that it will take to immunise people. Um, there's uh, 67 million people in this country, 7 billion people globally. So it's, it's a huge task which um, requires massive resources. So having tools that are, as you say, safe and effective is the first step, but it's not by no means the end of the road. I was very struck by the optimism um, from some quarters when the, the, the first vaccine success was announced, which is kind of, we'll all be back to normal by Easter, which seemed to be, I thought, perhaps a little over-optimistic. Um, and I wondered what you felt. I mean, we've been asked in primary care to be ready to deliver this vaccine in from the beginning of December. And, and I, my mind is not managed to compute that and thinking, surely it takes longer than that. Do you have a, a thoughts or any inside knowledge, Kat, about when we actually might be, when the needle might hit the arm? I don't have specific inside knowledge as to exactly when that's going to be. But I think you're right. There are, there are still... Uh, a, a way to go in terms of getting to the point where a, a vaccine is licensed for use. Um, and as you say, we need to have a full safety data set that allows us to do that. The regulators need to look at that data and be happy with it. And then we need to have a public health strategy that uses that tool um, in a way that is uh, most efficient and effective to reduce the um, impact of the pandemic. I do think that it's important that we're ready to do that. And because of the logistical challenges of delivering these new vaccines, we need to be prepared. And I, I think that's why at this point we're having those messages go out across the NHS, uh, looking at how we can do mass immunisation and also um, listening to what people's concerns are about this vaccine programme. Uh, uh, safety and the, the time that it's taken to develop vaccines comes up a lot. And um, it's important that we have those conversations well in advance of when um, we're ready to actually um, put needles in arms, as you said. Katrina, I, I was reading about your profile before coming on and I see you've also uh, tried to promote the importance of T-cell immunity for a long time. You won an award about T-cell immunity and it feels as if the last few months has been the rise of the T-cell almost. You know, we've read about antibody tests, how they're perhaps not in the full picture and you've mentioned antibody testing again. How can we move forward with this more cell-based T-cell immunity tests, especially in the context of many of these vaccines, which is hugely dependent on T-cells. Are there tests which we can use now? And can they be used in conjunction, for example, with antibody testing? Yes. The reason why antibodies are, tend to be the focus of uh, vaccine development 
is they're the most likely candidates as correlates of protection. So uh, they intervene at the first parts of uh, the infection cycle. So if you think of neutralizing antibody, that they are neutralizing because they prevent the antibody from getting into the cell. And if you can do that, then you can potentially prevent an infection from ever being seeded. And um, uh, that is the uh, traditional approach to um, vaccine research uh, and um, has an important role to play in understanding vaccine efficacy. Um, we don't yet know how the antibody tests that you mentioned that are, that are being used more widely um, uh, transfer to what that means for neutralising immunity and, and protection against infection. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there uh, to try to understand if you, if you have a, a commercial antibody test what might that mean in terms of um, uh, protection against infection? All it really tells us at the moment is that you've, um, uh, you've, you've been exposed to the infection at some point. Um, with respect to T-cell immunity, the T-cells are, are really uh, fascinating from an immunology point of view because they're the, the major architects of, of the immune response and they have so many different functions. Uh, and um, my particular research interest is in T cells that um, help B cells to make antibody, um, which is a, a growing area of interest and, and may prove to be particularly important for vaccine design in the future. Uh, in terms of how we can understand the, the vaccine response, uh, uh, looking at T cell assays, um, there's a lot of research um, uh, base work that, that can be done. But in terms of commercialization of those assays, I think that is quite challenging, largely because um, handling uh, the cells that come from the blood, that's usually where we, we get our T cells from in order to work, work on, is quite um, uh, difficult in, in logistically. It can be done, and, and there are assays that, uh, that use this, the, the T-spot, for example, against um, to look for T cell immunity against tuberculosis. Uh, is, is one that has been commercialised. Uh, and there may, there may well be a role for that in the future. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit, as a, as a, as a T-cell immunologist, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed that there hasn't been more focus on this um, in the phase one and phase two trials. Um, many of the trials haven't reported um, their T-cell data yet. And I'd like to see uh, more of that. Um, uh, in in the work that um, uh, I've done with with Oxford on on their um, uh, adenoviral vector candidate, uh, they're very interested in T cells as well, and, and they ha did show a very nice um, uh, antigen specific T cell response, which peaked at um, at 14 days after immunisation. So certainly, uh, some um, vaccine designs will give a robust T cell response. And as I was saying earlier, as we understand more about infection, we, we may find that, that these different strands of the immune response have a different role to play in terms of how we're protected from either infection or disease. So I think we, we definitely need to continue research in this area. Uh, and I guess one big challenge, apart from the science that you've mentioned already about people becoming on board, is the balance between being open about discussions about vaccine safety and safety data, which is crucial, but at the same time not being so open, as Richard Dawkins said, let's be open-minded, but not so open-minded that our brains fall out. 
um, you know, getting that balance right in you know the state of play of social media at the minute and, and the rise of um, you know vaccine doubters, if you want to call them that, that balance is really hard. And how can we as a profession, when we're interacting with patients, the public on social media, how do we get that balance right? I think getting that balance right is challenging. Uh, the first thing to say is that we need simple and clear messages. And in order to give those messages, uh, you need to understand the data in depth and, uh, and understand what it's telling us. Um, and it's important that we do that in a way that is objective, uh, that doesn't overinterpret what's out there and isn't um, overly swayed by opinion. And, and people feel very passionately about uh, COVID-19 and um, they have a lot of opinion. And, and that, that, of course, is, is uh, an important part of the social discussion. But when we're talking about the science and about how we're going to move forward from our current position, we do need to be able to interpret that and to deliver those messages. I, I certainly think that's possible. It's something I feel very strongly about and which is why I've, I've done um, a lot of podcasts and a lot of um, media discussions about it. One of the things I've noticed, um, particularly on social media, is that often uh, people um, interpret that the messages they're being given in an overly complex way. Uh, in fact, um, the way these trials are run and uh, the readouts that they give are relatively straightforward and they're um, subject to uh, rules um, which um, define how the trials are set up and then how the regulators look at the data. Uh, and I think if people understood that um, more clearly, they would feel more satisfied um, with the uh, messages that they're being given um, uh, in terms of what the readouts are from those trials. So I think it's important we, we explain the research and, and how it's being done to people in a way that uh, is straightforward and can be understood, but um, is representative of the data. Kat, I think something you said um, earlier about um, the key, what I also consider the key thing here to vaccination policy is the length of immunity from um, natural infection or indeed any immunity. Um, and that's a, the, a, a, an unknown at the moment. I just wondered whether, um, you know, you had any insights around the early thinking around policy. Many, many people either definitely had COVID with, you know, lab confirmed or think they had COVID, even more think they had COVID. Obviously, there are people haven't recovered from COVID, you know, with long COVID. What is what is the initial thinking about vaccinating them, you know, given that unknown about probability of reinfection? Um, and we don't know who's more likely to re get reinfected, um, if anything. Did you? I know it's unknown, but just any anything that you... Um, can tell us about the early thinking about this? Because I think from policy-wise, surely somebody should be thinking about this now, I would hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, something I've thought about a lot. I think it's it's um, an incredibly pertinent point and will become even more important um, once we have vaccines that are available to immunise people in, in the first um, part of the immunisation programme because we need to then rapidly be looking forward to what we're going to do next. And 
Uh, and it comes back to these uh, natural paradigms of infection and immunity, which we need to continuously monitor and study. And that is happening. So globally, there have been millions of infections, but the reports of, of reinfection are relatively um, rare, which I think is, is encouraging, but it does happen. Uh, and so um, what we need to understand is um, what the correlates of protection are. So can we define in the immune response uh, in somebody who's either had a vaccine or has previously um, been infected with SARS-CoV-2, what components of that immune response would protect them from getting uh, another infection? And not only what the components of it are, but how much is needed and, and how long it lasts for. And these efficacy trials that are currently um, underway will start to give us some hints of how, how we can do that. Most people believe that neutralizing antibody against the spike protein will be very important, but there may be other elements of the immune response that we need to understand. And then that needs to be translated into public health policy because um, we don't yet know if we will get um, last lifelong sterilizing immunity that would be wonderful if, if um, we could just immunize the whole population once and that would be it based on what we know about other coronaviruses I think that's unlikely I think it's possible that we, we we may need to have some strategy for boosting but we don't know yet we need to um, have those tools available to us and we need to be monitoring the right parts of the immunity across a, a section of the, of the population in order to define how we're going to do that. Thanks, Kat. Uh, what you say brings up the crucial question about implementation without wanting to leap too far ahead. There's lots of hurdles to get through for all three of the current front-running vaccines. Um, but uh, obviously thoughts are already going to how it will be implemented. Um, Helen, from the point of view of primary care, which certainly in the UK is going to be at, at the forefront of, of this, we, we hear. Tell us how you see that unfolding. Um, it's got off to a slightly rocky start. Um, there was a, a publication of a bit of GP contract about this time last week, um, which was basically saying all GPs had to be open 12 hours a day, seven days a week and be prepared to uh, vaccinate a thousand people a week um, or we couldn't have the vaccine. And it was kind of actually no one's going to sign up for this and everyone got very hot under the collar. It was also uh, uh, the original suggestion was that because it was a new vaccine and this was very much thinking about the Pfizer vaccine, um, that everyone should be observed um, for a quarter of an hour after they had the vaccine, uh, which got lots of people would take measures going around their surgeries thinking, how can I seat enough people two metres apart and watch them for 15 minutes and still get the throughput we need to vaccinate enough people? So everyone got really very um, wound up and lots of people talking about where does one get freezers that, that freeze down to the level that we need it to go. And then actually... Some of those things were rolled back even within a few days. And I expect more changes to happen with the, because we, we don't know which, which vaccine it's going to be. If it's the Oxford vaccine, if it's the Moderna vaccine, we may not need that very cold temperature, cold chain. Um, and all sorts of things may change. So lots and lots and lots of thought has been put into organising, which may have been slightly premature because we don't know what we're getting. 
Having said that, I think GPs on the ground are so up for doing this. We really, really want to be involved. And as GPs kind of organise their, or their administrators organise the flu campaigns every year. So we're used to getting out a vaccine to a significant proportion of our population every year. There's a kind of, well, we just upscale it, we can do this. Um, so I think it, it will happen, but it's been a little bit um, getting ahead of itself in the organisation, particularly the, the kind of spec that was handed down from NHS England, which um, upset quite a lot of people because it wasn't really workable. Kat, what are your thoughts on, on the practicalities of whichever vaccine is, is the one that we need to roll out? I think Helen raised some great points there. And I think we can take um, comfort in terms of logistics planning from two things. So first of all, is we deliver this incredible flu vaccination campaign every year um, and that has had excellent uptake this year. Um, and so we are able to do large scale immunisation programmes and we're very familiar with it. And that is delivered mostly in primary care um, and, and has also been delivered during the pandemic. So with all of those um, challenges that are brought about around social distancing and, and limiting transmission in, in the healthcare facility, uh, that was one of the greatest challenges that we had in our unit, um, which is a relatively um, small phase one, two unit. We suddenly had to scale up our activity hugely and also um, uh, maintain social distancing and observe people uh, after they've been immunised. And um, we have managed to do that. We've seen over a thousand people just, just being screened for um, uh, for their uh vaccine involvement in a, in a trial and, and had many, many more visits over the past six months. So I think it, it's doable, but it takes some planning and it, it certainly um, it requires uh, input from the entire team on the ground at each unit um, to get it all running. Once it's up and running, it, it runs fairly um, smoothly. Um, and I agree with Helen that this has got to be workable and, and it's got to be workable for quite a long time. Um, and so um, people have to have rest. It's got to be staffed appropriately. Um, and I think that that, again, is all doable. And that in, in also contributes to, to the safety, both of staff and, and of patients coming in to have their vaccine. And then the other point that um, she raised was about um, handling um, vaccines that don't come in a, um, a pre-prepared syringe that's uh, stable at room temperature. And I think it's very unlikely that we will get any of the first generation of COVID vaccines presented in that way. And so therefore there are going to be logistical challenges with managing the vaccine, managing uh, the temperature control, um, uh, using what is like to be multi-dose vials rather than a single dose vial. Uh, and um, and doing that efficiently so that there isn't vaccine wastage because these um, first doses are going to be precious. So that's going to require a bit of thought and a bit of logistics. And when we think about doing that on a large scale, it, it does become additionally challenging. However, again, I would say in terms of what we've managed to do on the research side in uh, uh, scaling up vaccine research across the clinical research network with the support of the NIHR um, shows that it can be done and 
I'd like to see the research community and um, GPs and, and people who are delivering the, the um, immunisation programme to work together so that um, learnings from uh, what we've been doing already can be transferred across uh, and um, really facilitate this uh, planning for this programme. Talking of planning, a, a key issue that's on everyone's mind is how we decide who gets the first round of vaccination and what should be the priorities be. Nizreen, what is, what's your thinking on that? Um, yes, I agree with you. Um, I think the way I see it, uh, you know, what I'm seeing now is prioritisation of who gets vaccinated or who gets vaccinated first is something that is worrying uh, people a lot. Um, I think I think we may have um, an obvious category in people who are clinically extremely vulnerable, uh, but um, the way I see it also is we, we, it's difficult then to decide after that. So you know, decisions about age cutoffs, uh, decisions about um, you know uh, ethnicity. So you know, people from ethnic minority we know have a higher mortality rate from COVID. Also, key workers. So I think healthcare workers might be an obvious category, but also lots of other people, front-facing roles, um, including. Uh, teaching staffs, for example, um, who are already already very worried about, uh, you know, the schools being uh, kept open and the measures uh, to prevent transmission at school. So any, what's the thinking around that, um, Kat? Is anything else, you know, I, I just, I feel this is, a, an, you know, in terms of identifying who's vulnerable, vulnerable uh, only in terms of mortality, not, not, you know, let alone morbidity, which I go on about, but even in terms of mortality, I don't think we have really very specific tools so far. Let me ask um, Matt, uh, and then we'll come back round to you, Kath, for, for your views on everyone's, <laughs> everyone else's views. Matt? Yeah, I guess a, a very similar paradigm in that we see daily death numbers on, on the news, but actually, although death is a very good binary metric, it's not a great metric if you're the person who survived. <laughs> you know, being three weeks in ICU with tubes coming out of you and surviving, you're not great. You know, that's a life-changing experience. So I think that's got a feature in that calculation too. And I would hope that the prioritization list is data-driven. You know, can we identify super spreaders, for example? Can we identify those who individually have high R numbers or those who are more at risk of, of morbidities? I don't know if those tools are available. Thanks, Matt. And, and Helen? Looking at the prioritisation of groups, um, I'm hoping that some, some data went into, I'm sure some data went into putting that, but it, it, at face value, it's slightly... Um, surprising that the clinically extremely um, vulnerable adults under 65 um, come really quite low down. I think they're group six or something in the in the list. Just remind us what the current um, uh, groupings are. Yes, certainly. So the um, prioritisation that's been done um, so far uh, by the Joint Committee for Vaccines and Immunisations uh, starts with older adults resident in care homes and care home workers. So they're the first group that get it. Um, then we've got everyone over 80 um, and people and health and social care workers. Interesting question of who counts into those um, health workers. Is it everybody who's in a hospital? Is it everyone in my health centre? Interesting question. Then we, number three is over 75s, then over 70s then over 65, and then at number six, we get to high-risk adults under 65. Um, and then we gradually go down the age groups um, 
uh, in kind of five-year bands um, until the rest of the population priority to be determined is group 11. Um, I think what's interesting about that is that the high-risk adults under 65 don't come in until all everyone um, over 65 has um, had their go. I suppose I would be really interested to know how we got to that particular set of prioritizations, which really has age as its first thing. And then um, and one worries about some of the very vulnerable people actually ending up so low down on the list. I don't know whether, Kat, you know how that's been arrived at. Uh, I wasn't involved uh, in uh, producing that list. Um, and in terms of how it may have been generated, I mean, it's clear that um, COVID-19, the mortality rate is correlates with age in the most remarkable way, and in a way that um, I think perhaps tells us something about the disease pathogenesis. And we wouldn't see with other infections, for example, um, even uh, flu doesn't look like that in terms of its morbidity and mortality rate. The, the, the curve is quite different. Um, I, I guess to, to defend it to some extent, um, there has to be prioritisation. And, and that, um, that does mean that decisions need to be made about how um, uh, vaccines are used and the first doses of vaccines are used. I come back to um, this idea of it being data-driven, which I think Matt also brought up, and that's very, very important because we need to understand what the efficacy data is telling us. Now, the ideal vaccine would prevent infection, prevent disease, and prevent transmission in absolutely everybody. Um, but it's incredibly unlikely. In fact, even these very promising early results show us that that's not the case. There are breakthrough infections. Um, and uh, so when we're making these decisions, we do need to understand how implementing a vaccination strategy will uh, affect um, a transmission, for example, of the infection and who, despite immunisation programmes, remains uh, at risk of infection and disease. And so if we think about a specific example, if we have a vaccine that um, gives us maybe 70% efficacy to prevent disease in somebody who's vulnerable, um, uh, if that person has, has the vaccine, then, then their, their risk of disease is reduced, but it doesn't necessarily um, prevent infection. And, and if, if the vaccine is not shown to prevent infection, then they would perhaps still be at risk of having a mild or asymptomatic infection, and which could then mean that they might a bit risk of transmitting if they weren't symptomatic. Um, and if we then uh, ramp that up to a, a population level, that has a very important implications for how we might think about what the vaccine is going to do in terms of uh, the pandemic at a population level. And we need to understand that there will still be um, people who remain vulnerable to disease and, and sadly to mortality. Uh, and, and so therefore the strategy has to be nuanced. It has to um, try to protect those most at risk in a way that speaks to the data um, about each individual vaccine. So I don't think it's going to be straightforward and it, it needs to be carefully thought through and that does need to be done rapidly and in conjunction with the people who are delivering the vaccine uh, to um, the uh, UK population. Yeah, so it, I guess it seems slightly odd to produce a priority list before we know the actual uh, 
stratification of those vaccine trials. So, for example, rightfully so, nursing and residents right up there in priority. What happens if none of the candidate vaccines have been trialled in that group or if subgroup analysis shows that actually it's least effective in that group? Yeah, I think that that is absolutely what we need to be looking at. And that's why we need to see the efficacy data and why we need to have a, a strategy that speaks to the data um, about the vaccines and not just the data uh, about the risk of um, disease and infection. I mean, what's interesting about this list is that it includes um, both the risk of infection and the risk of disease um, right at the top. So um, if we think about older adults resident in a care home, they would be uh, at risk of disease, uh, whereas the care home workers may or may not be at risk of disease, but they're at certainly at risk of infection. And um, as I was saying earlier, um, a vaccine may or may not um, alter the infection disease cycle in both those ways. Um, so it's possible that we'd have to look at this list again once we understand the efficacy data. Um, I, what it's aimed at doing is um, minimising um, tran both transmission and risk of disease in, in the settings where people have been most vulnerable. And I I absolutely understand that and, and we do need to focus on that. Um, we could have a, a very different strategy. We, we might say, well, actually, what we want a vaccine to do is to completely prevent transmission. Perhaps we have a vaccine that could do that. And so we maybe would focus on those at higher risk, highest risk of, in, of, it, of infection. Um, but the, the problem with doing that is that you then require massive um, vaccination coverage in order to to achieve it. Um, so that's why um, we're really focused on those who are, who are so vulnerable. But I agree, once the efficacy data is published in full, once we know those subgroup analyses, as you um, uh, talked about earlier, then we need to look at this list again and say, do the vaccines that we have available speak to this? Will they be able to deliver in this way and, and be prepared to be flexible on those points in order to use those precious doses of vaccine in a way that's going to really benefit people. I wonder whether this is an opportunity for uh, real uh, citizen involvement, um, you know, citizens' juries. It, it, this seems to be the ultimate prioritisation exercise, which affects everyone, unlike so many of those, um, you know, about specific disease groups or, or healthcare system delivery. Uh, you know, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to bring the public in and ex explain the science to them, explain the data and invite views on who should be first and last? Helen. I, uh, I see what you're, what you're getting at, but actually I do think we need to be, we need to know, does this prevent transmission? Does it stop you having a horrible disease? Who, who produces a good response to this vaccine? Um, and I actually agree with Kat that we should be, and Matt, we should be data-driven on this. And I, I would hate it, it to come to a citizen's jury um, and it to be about weighing which lives are worth more, which I have to say some of the coverage that there's been about coronavirus has been quite unpleasant in the sense of, you know, the dispensability of, or perceived dispensability of older people. Um, and, and I just think we should try to be thinking about designing our strategy based on the properties of the vaccine that we get um, and what makes most sense 
in terms of reducing morbidity and reducing mortality rather than I, I worry that a citizen's jury type thing, we, we may get into this uh, I, something about trying to weigh up the value of one life against another. I, I really don't think we should go there. I guess just one added complexity to throw in there with, I don't know how many now, over 50 candidate vaccines. Of course, these data are likely to be different for different vaccines, presumably. So we'll have a single priority list and yet we'll have, you know, 10 successful vaccines which say, oh, well, this one is good for the frail and vulnerable. This one prevents long COVID. This one does something else. Uh, and the amount of computations to that for what we said at the beginning, to have a simple, unified, understandable message for the public to get on board with, I think that's going to be tough. Well, I'd, to be honest, I, I, um, I think um, uh, public involvement would be key here because I really can't see a position um, in a few months' time, that we'll be certain about all of these things. There's the risk of disease, severity of disease, uh, risk of, you know, um, um, the duration of disease. Uh, there is the efficacy of the vaccine and the different uh, categories. Um, there is the, uh, uh, you know, efficacy of vaccine in terms of transmission. All of these things, we might have some more, we might be certain about some answers um, than others. I really doubt we'll be certain about everything. And I think some shaky decisions have been made in this pandemic without public involvement based on not, non, not certain data at all. I think the acknowledging the uncertainty, uh, communicating, really important, communicating to the public, the science and the uncertainty in it, and then inviting involvement in those very difficult decisions, because they are difficult. And I think there's no running away from them. Um, and But but they need to, we need to be open. Everybody needs to be open about them. Uh, I can get what you're saying Nizreen I was kind of thinking in a counterfactual sense of a, of a time when the people making the decisions were all people of good faith um, who were acting purely on the science on the science um, actually we have fairly good evidence that quite a lot of the um, decisions taken in the pandemic response um, have been influenced by other things particularly the awarding of the contracts have not been about who, do, who will do the job best. And so maybe uh, I will take back what I said earlier and say we perhaps we do need to um, listen to a wider public. I just think that they are incredibly complicated decisions and we may end up with several different vaccines um, as we do with the flu. We have different vaccines for different age groups with the flu. That's what we handle every year. Um, the moment we have, we have three different, we have a, a, a pediatric vaccine, we have an under 65 vaccine, we have an over 65 vaccine um, for the flu and we manage that and one can see that one might be doing the same sort of thing. It's going to get really complicated and it's not that we don't want um, a public voice in this, it's just it needs to be handled really clearly. I, I would say that that complexity is exactly the reason why public involvement would be so good. I mean, we've found it uh, working in climate change, climate emergency. Citizens' jury is now beginning to, um, you know, hopefully guide government policy, if we can get that right. So, I mean, Kat, what do you feel? Um, is, is this, could this be part of educa educating, sounds patronising, engaging and, and um, you know, really bringing the public on board for this vaccination programme? Yes, I think so. I think the discussion that we've just had really does start to thrash out the um, difficulties in this area. But I, I don't think that's a reason not to go to the public. I, I, I agree that I think 
it's a reason to involve them from a research perspective. Um, that's the way we run our clinical trials at Imperial. Um, we're very, very focused on uh, having our participants and, and the public involved in what we do. And um, that's very helpful because we get feedback about how we're running the trials and we get, in, in, we get involvement and engagement. And it also allows for uncertainty to be expressed in a way that acknowledges um, risk and um, creates a, a sense of, of, of shared initiative. And I think we really are going to need that for these larger immunisation programmes. Yes, the messages, um, the, the data is complex, um, and, and the discussion may, of course, um, stray into territory that perhaps um, is not um, particularly um, appropriate for deciding public health strategy overall. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't have those discussions. Uh, and ultimately, I think it, it could help to inform what we do. And the other very important point is that without public buy-in, there will be no immunisation strategy. Um, so I, I, I think we need to do this in a way that is meaningful um, and will help engagement in the long term. Yeah, and I guess that public engagement isn't three people standing at a lectern saying, next slide, please, or Boris having somebody from the public call in uh, from different cities around the UK. You know, this should involve some of the great institutions we have in the UK that do science communication and public engagement. You know, we've got Welcome, uh, probably across the road from you in London. We've got amazing documentary filmmakers who have produced amazing climate change documentaries. We've got amazing presenters, citizen scientists to do that. So I really hope that this is, uh, you know, an all-encompassing 360 public engagement and not just a token gesture by government of having uh, you know somebody calling on a, on a dodgy phone line. But I do think uh, again, public engagement will lead to more ownership, um, uh, which which in turn will lead to more uptake of the vaccine um, as a result of um, trust and and more understanding. I think it's a big effort, but probably will be well rewarded because we are all worrying about uptake, um, you know, and trust in terms of vaccine. Um, so I think an exercise like this, uh, well conducted, as Matt said, uh, would would uh, would be uh, quite effective um, in 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 try in, in really making the public feel generally uh, they own you know they own these decisions um, um, because I think a very big part of what's happened the failure in terms in terms of pandemic control has been that. People were told, uh, just told what to do. They actually, uh, most of them acted in good faith and did, uh, you know, what they were told to do. And then these decisions kept changing uh, without uh, any, <laughs> uh, without explaining, you know, our justification uh, for them. Um, and I think very, very uh, gradually, we, we we now see a, a complete a disconnection, almost a complete disconnection, really, between, you know, between what needs to be done and what the public um, can trust um, in terms of the effectiveness of what they're doing or the reward from what they're doing. Helen, are you convinced about public engagement? I'm, I'm sure you are at one level. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely convinced about public engagement, but I think the um, the sort of engagement you get with public involvement in in science is a is a small and select group, and absolutely you want to be open and you want to, want to involve all the people who'd like to be involved. But lots of people don't and can't. And, and have have no time for it. They they um, and actually are 
the consumers of the policy, as has been said, and it's been really difficult to consume the policy because you've no idea what it is and you don't actually trust it. At least that's been the outcome of where, where we've got so far because it's changed so many times. And when it's been presented, it's been presented with illegible graphs that nobody can understand and a kind of general feeling that no one has a clue what's going on. Um, and I, it just what has really galled some people this week is the production of these, there's some fantastic um, advertisements on German telly, which have now appeared in the English media with subtitles, which just show how to do communications, which have, they've got a, a, a veteran, an elderly man saying, I remember the coronavirus uh, winter of 2020 and talking about the heroism and the sacrifice that they had to, to do what was expected of them, which was to do nothing. And it's beautifully shot and very, very funny about people's absolute duty to do nothing and stay at home. Really, really very, very well done. Um, and, you know, you can see that they've got such good people doing their public communication. And we've lacked that here. We've really lacked good communication to people, both of this is where we are, this is the uncertainty, this is where the science has got to, but also is this is the thing that you need to keep yourself and your family safe. We've really not had good communication at all, I don't think. Um, and, you know, wh wherever we get with this vaccine is going to require really, really good communication to get over a lot of the misinformation that's out there about vaccines and the harms they might do or... Um, the good they will fail to do. Before we finish, I'd just like to hear from all of you how, how things are um, where, where you are, uh, just to give a sort of sense of the, of the temperature of the second wave as, as it currently sweeps across the, the UK in particular. Uh, Matt, tell us how things are in Cardiff. Well, I know how things are because every time I do this podcast, I look at myself on Zoom and I look slightly tired than the week before. Uh, it is getting busier, uh, different from wave one. Yes, we have patients in intensive care uh, with coronavirus, but we are uh, in Wales. We had about 150 ventilated patients with COVID in wave one. We have about 70 in Wales now. So we're about halfway, if you like. But the hospital systems are really busy. We are over a thousand patients in hospital in Wales with coronavirus, 900 at the peak. So the pressure is really on the systems rather than, I think, the individual units and especially the individual intensive care units at the minute. Not to say they aren't under pressure. Of course they are. Uh, but I think it's a system pressure this time rather than discrete entities. Thanks, Matt. Helen, how are things in general practice? Um, it's very different in different places across the country. I noticed, I looked at a, a little map and something like 3% of hospital beds in Oxford are uh, occupied by people with, with coronavirus, which is really very low. It, up the road in Reading, it's 11%. At the other end of the country in Barnsley, it's 33%. So there's this massive difference across the country. What's also interesting is for us locally is that the... Um, there is a difference of whether you're like to have COVID depending on your wealth. And that happens not just geographically, but even within regions and even within organisations. So I've noticed that none of our doctors are off with COVID. 
but actually quite a lot of our ancillary staff, our receptionists and our admin teams are off isolating because their families have or have had it themselves. And it just really, it's not a, a leveller, this virus. And the way we're struggling is that actually um, just keeping the show on the road with so few of, of our, with so many of our staff off and relatively few of them still at work is quite hard, which actually may throw a spanner in the works of some of the vaccine work as well. And um, we're really short of people. And that also speaks to that prioritisation uh, point about, you know, who do we really need, the police, the teachers and possibly the ancillary staff, um, you know, to keep keep things moving, moving forward. Uh, people who really have to be face to face and, and maybe less economically um, protected, if that makes sense. Nizreen, how are things um, in your worldview? Well, I can um, um, see actually more people adapting to this new way of life, making small changes in their lives uh, to adapt. So, for example, um, uh, you know, when school first started, uh, uh, you know, my son, for example, wore a face mask, but uh, uh, he didn't like it, um, you know, very much. And, and now him and his mate, I see them walking back from school, uh, still wearing their face masks, as, even though they're walking in the street. Um, and when I asked him why he's doing that, he said, well, you know, it, it's fine. I don't feel it anymore. It's comfortable. And, you know, we just, you know, we didn't take it off or we forgot to take it off or something. So you can see how human behavior changes uh, because humans are very adapt <laughs> adaptable um, and and resilient. Um, and I think it's really important just to keep that in mind with uh, in terms of public messaging as well with the vaccine, with the optimism about the vaccine to actually say we probably sh would be, um, these behaviour change change would, would need to be around for a while um, and let's start adapting to them and maybe they're not so bad and we can live with them and we can be happy and we can, you know, socially connect and do all of these things. Um, so I think, um, you know, with the right messaging, um, you know, the public, uh, you know, would largely be on board and obviously taking into account all the inequalities i think that's really important um you know um in terms of um asking people to do things you know removing all the barriers uh, we should still talk about this every single day uh, even if we have good vaccine news every single day just before we close we've had turmoil at number 10 uh, with boris johnson talking about a reshuffle in january what would you like the Prime Minister to do? What difference would you like to see in the way we're being led? Helen? My fervent hope is that with maybe some of the um, Leave fanatics now not in the driving seat anymore, we could call a screeching halt to the before we go over the precipice and maybe salvage something. Because my real fear is that I'm going to be trying to organise a vaccination campaign while at the same time desperately trying to substitute all the medications my patients are on because we can't get hold of the drugs because there's been a, a post-Brexit pharmaceutical supply chain crash. So my, my hope would be some sort of break on Brexit catastrophe. Matt? I think I want it to be boring, actually. <laughs> We say the best night you can have in intensive care for a patient is a boring night where nothing happens and you have time to heal. And I think the last thing we need now is scrabbling around internal fighting and it, the spotlight being on politics. You know, the spotlight should be on 
health on humanity and on getting through this. Uh, and so I want a boring time. Nizreen. Um, well, I, I, I hope there might be, there will be more listening, uh, you know, maybe there might be, you know, just listening to this podcast, for example, listening to experts and listening to the public in terms of, um, you know, meeting the needs, you know, and, 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 and looking, you know, looking at inequalities, just more listening, you know, if there's a bit more listening, five, 5% more, you know, that would be, uh, that would be uh, great in terms of my expectations. Cat. Yes, I'd, I'd second that about listening and, and in, a, in a very specific way. So what I'd like to see uh, the government and its advisory bodies uh, working on now is a public health strategy that goes beyond the short term, that looks to the medium and even the long term, acknowledging all of the uncertainty uh, about uh, the pandemic and, and about um, the various tools that we have to control it, including the vaccines that does that in an objective way, in a rational way, in a way that can be nimble and can respond to new data as it comes out um, and to um, really protect public health and, and also move forward and get, a, get us out of this crisis. So that's what I'd like to see happening in the next few weeks to months. Thanks to Nizreen Alwan, Helen Salisbury, Matt Morgan and Katrina Pollock. As always, we want to cover the issues that matter to our listeners, so do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. We'll be coming back weekly with these Second Wave podcasts, so subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Fee Godley, and I'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>